ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. My name is Drea Clark. Joining me today, Samantha, why don't we begin with you? I'm Samantha Ellis, and we also have Kimberly Pierce. Yay! Kristen is not here today, but we are shifting things around, keeping people on their toes, giving them different flavors and perspective each time. It's the new ticklish way. Yay! I'm super excited because today we are discussing a film that I put on our possibilities chart literally over a year ago because I love it so much and I think it's such a crucial building block and foundational piece for so many things and also just a delight to watch. We are going to discuss Sherlock Jr., my sweet, sweet buddy Buster Keaton's film from 1924. I hope I got that year right because I said it really confidently. I would love to hear your two backgrounds with old Sherlock Jr. because they're different than mine and I'm excited about that as well. Samantha, how about you? We were just talking about it. I saw this one in particular for the first time last night, but I would say I have a decent silent film background because so many of the people that I love in the classic film community are really interested in silent films. My very first silent film was The General, so I've definitely seen some Buster Keaton before. It's going to be really amazing talking about this one because nowadays, really, a lot of Buster Keaton, what we hear and see of him, people put together fan-made compilations of all of his amazing stunt work and all of the amazing gags that he used to do. It was so amazing watching this film because I feel like now I've seen all of them. They were all from this movie, basically. Right, right. So many of the biggest hits were in this one 45-minute film. Absolutely. So it was really cool to finally see it. Kimberly, tell me about you. This was a first-time watch for me as well. I don't consider myself great with silent film. I've hit a lot of the essentials. My first was probably The Chic. I had a very young Rudolph Valentino face. Good. Haven't we all? (laughs) (laughs) Middle school. It's like, okay, I have to see more. Silent comedy is probably my favorite. Keaton and Harold Lloyd do wrestle in my head for who I like better. I've seen more Lloyd. Loved The General. Saw that really young seen Steamboat Bill, so I've seen some of the essentials on, on Keaton and just crossing this one off. And I was really excited to see it and just stunned that it was even more than what I was expecting and just everything going on there. This movie, I have such a backwards way into most. And this one I found very young because I was weirdly, I don't know if they aired them all the time or something, but I freaking loved Annette Funicello and Frankie Avalon beach movies so much when I was young. I'm pretty sure they must have been on TV. I don't know how I would have wandered into that. Buster Keaton is in Beach Blanket Bingo. How to stuff a wild bikini. My dad was like, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, young lady. You can't watch this because I was like laughing at him 40 plus years later and he's still doing so much athletic 
vaudevillian looking physical comedy. And my dad was like, no, no, no. This is great, but no, let's take a little trip in the time travel machine. We need to see the roots of this. No. Yeah, exactly. And I'm glad you mentioned Harold Lloyd, because obviously the trio that everyone thinks of is Chaplin, Lloyd, and Keaton. And watching how their stars have waxed and waned in these years since they've passed has also been fascinating. The things that will bring people to them or revisit them or find them in the first place. And Sherlock Jr. is one of those. I'm sure a lot of people who go to film school will see it. There's so much to deconstruct in it, to borrow our own term. The idea of looking on a story level, the economy of story here versus... We've discussed some silence before, but one of the things Buster Keaton was renowned for was eliminating so many of the title cards and the verbiage from silent film and really introducing that concept of show don't tell you could analyze it just for the stunts and comedic gags and that would be enough but it's also the economy of storytelling and what you're getting and re-watching this and just the crispness and leanness of it there's so many beats that work there's so many things that give you small character insights that just make a whole bit more than a physical feat Before this one, did you have any other Buster Keaton favorites? You both mentioned The General, which most people would probably classify as his masterpiece, although he had so many shorts and so many other things. This one is starting to change my mind a little bit. It's really hard to top The General, not only in Keaton films, but in silent films. And now that I've seen this, I don't want to throw my opinion in too early, but this is probably his best that I've seen. Even more than The General, even though The General has a very solid place in my heart. Although of the three, while we're talking about the three, I'm definitely a Harold Lloyd girl. With the exception of City Lights, I think City Lights is the best sort of silent film. Semi-silent. I'll admit, I struggle with Chaplin. I always have. There's just something there that doesn't gel for me. I remember... It was always the big two. It was always Keaton or Chaplin. I was so glad to see Harold Lloyd get the resurgence he got. I would say that was, what, God, 10, maybe 15 years ago when they released that DVD set. And ever since then, he's clawed his way back. My intro to Buster Keaton, you mentioned the beach party movies on, used to be Saturday nights on AMC. They used right? to do all the American International Pictures lineup. And that was the first time I ever saw Buster Keaton because I was obsessed with Frankie Avalon. And then when the general is the one, obviously, that sticks, you think about Steamboat Bill Jr. and that house gag. The physical work is unprecedented and unparalleled. I was watching this last night, just found myself gasping even on the little computer screen, trying to envision myself in that theater 96 years ago that just cemented just how I felt about this. I'd love to see more because I've kind of seen those three for Keaton now, but I don't have much of a great knowledge into the other works in the silent era. 50s and 60s, 60s especially, I've seen a lot, but I need to definitely dive deeper. As we're having this discussion, I'm realizing out of the three, I've seen the fewest Keaton films by far. Mm -hmm. Because you guys are throwing out a lot that I haven't seen. I haven't seen 
the Beach Party movies. I've seen one of them that maybe had him. I haven't seen How Stuff a Wild Bikini. I know that. I saw the general, it was in, I believe, a public domain box set that I bought at like a garage sale. And it was the first silent movie I'd ever seen. I was like, okay, we'll throw this on. And it was amazing. It was absolutely incredible. But from there, I moved on to other actors and other eras. I've seen him in One Week. And I've seen in the good old summertime where he has a bit part in a gag. They basically just hired him for the gag. But other than that, I really have to get more into Keaton. With Harold Lloyd and with Charlie Chaplin, really, Criterion has been so meticulous about restoring and bringing all of their films in front of the eyes of modern audiences. And I don't feel like Keaton has gotten that quite as much. Although I will say I saw the restoration of Sherlock Jr. I don't know if you guys saw like the newest of the new version when you guys watched it, but the one that I saw was amazing. One of my favorite stories about his work being restored is that the house that Buster Keaton bought, I'm going to say in the 30s when he was, he's had some ups and downs. He had a large battle with alcoholism, but the house that he built and then ended up losing, James Mason bought and found a bunch of old prints in it, including Sherlock Jr., and was part of handing those over and getting them brought back to life, which I always think is such a funny... I say this all the time in my own work in L.A., that it's small-town L.A. The amount of times here that you'll run into someone who's connected to someone in some way, it's the world's smallest town. To me, that was such a fun fact. Sure, who else is going to buy your house but James Mason? If there Um, weren't already enough reasons to love James Mason. (laughs) Right, right. Samantha, I will say for the beach blanket ones, he is also very much just trotted out for some fun things. Obviously, he's much older than them then, so it's these little blips of him rather than the full force. It's a testament to silent comedy. It looks like they're hearkening. It's like, oh, look at this guy. Remember him? And then he he does one thing and then you don't see him again. That definitely sounds like in the good old summertime. It makes sense because even watching the silent films, he doubled for a lot of the other people doing these stunts. So it would stand to reason that in films after that, that they would want to use him for his incredible stunt work abilities. I've always found it fascinating. There's a lot of directors that you can look at and see a very clear Buster Keaton influence. Wes Anderson is one that people mention all the time, especially with the absurdity of comedic gags, just framing in general. But to me, Buster Keaton, the person that most emulates him was Jackie Chan. The idea of Buster Keaton as this physical presence who was also a director, he was handling the vision of things, and Sherlock Jr. is a perfect version of this, from tip to tail, as they say. Every part of it is a machination of his brain, and that he is also the performer, and by that I mean also doing all of these stunts. There's so many things in this that I'm like, they would never let the lead do that now. Are you kidding me? He puts himself at such physical risk and has such physical damage to his body. I will say, too, that if Samantha, if you haven't, 
Peter Bogdanovich directed a documentary on Buster Keaton a couple years ago called The Great Buster, A Celebration. I was lucky enough to get to premiere it at LA Film Fest. Peter came out and did the Q&A and was wonderful and gracious. Anyway, it's got a lot of this background. It also has a lot of modern people talking about the influence of him, which I always like to see that because I feel like we can pick up on it in all movies, literally said from the last hundred years, basically. But hearing them say it and acknowledge it, I just find it wonderful. Sherlock Jr., to anyone who hasn't seen it, though, again, it is pretty readily available. There's even a restored version on YouTube. I had also watched, there's a version on Prime that you can see if you get a login. It's another account. It's out there and accessible, and I do think it is well worth people watching. Not to lead with the review, but I will lead with the review because it's such a short film. Just get in there. So it's following this young man who is a projectionist at a movie theater and is pursuing this young woman in trying to woo her. He's short on funds, can't do much, but he's a good guy. He's chock full of integrity. When he's trying to woo her, the other suitor is, you guys, not such a good guy. And we know that because he's tall and has a mustache, like all bad guys. The bad suitor steals a pocket watch and then basically tries to set Buster up for it. But all of this is explored in a fascinating way, almost Wizard of Oz type. Like you set up all these characters that you recognize in the real world time of this. And then Buster goes back to his job. He's kicked out. He's banished from the family. The girl won't see him. He goes back to his job at the movie theater and basically falls asleep while projecting a movie and then enters into a movie himself where all of the characters we've seen from his real life are now playing fictionalized heightened versions of themselves. And he is now Sherlock Jr. Because, of course, when we met him, he is reading a book literally titled how to be a detective. In case you were wondering what his interests were, that's it, detecting. The setup of this is so shrewd. It's so fun and smart because you get the real life stuff and the goofiness there. And then because so much of this story is in this fantasy world, it allows for a lot of those absurdist twitches that might remove you from story if you were trying to tie them to reality. Was the framing of this familiar to you guys, or was it a surprise for you? He literally leaps into a movie screen, Purple Rose of Cairo style. I knew that it was a movie within a movie premise. Sitting here thinking about it now, I'm drawing almost comparisons to Singing in the Rain, The Dancing Cavalier. Get on the head and find yourself in the movie. See them pulling from that. I knew that that was coming. What I was amazed watching it is how visual, like you said, you have this intricate lead in and this intricate story, but there's so few title cards and how brilliantly that narrative is crafted. They don't give you too much in terms of text, but yet you know exactly who this guy is, you know everything, and then you're just plunged right into these visuals. Those charming little character moments, the one that leaps out to me, it just made me laugh the first time I saw it. He's sitting with the girl. I think he gives her the ring and she goes to look at the ring and it's so tiny, he hands her the magnifying glass. Then he pulls out of his pocket. Yes. (laughs) It's like, okay, so now we know him, we know her, we know all of this. And just this one little tiny moment. 
And it's so adorable because she tries to look at it up close with the magnifying glass and then he pulls away her hand like, no, okay, look at it from far away, but with the magnifying glass. (laughs) It's so adorable. Once you're plunged into that, once he falls asleep, everything happens and he's directed this, he's crafted this, and they're doing such fascinating stunts that it just flows you right on through. It's such a short movie already, and it felt like it just flew. It feels like a seven-minute movie. It goes so quickly. I'm glad that you brought up her and her reaction to the diamond, because I think that's another thing, and I have no need to pit any of these actors against each other, but it's something I find with Buster Keaton, similar to Harold Lloyd, more so than Chaplin, is there's a sympathy to him. And Buster's is interesting. He came from a vaudeville background. Both of his parents were vaudeville actors. He started on the stage with them from birth. The joke of it was that basically his father was beating him up and throwing him around. Apparently, they had a suitcase handle sewn into his clothing on stage. And his dad would just pick him up by the handle and throw him. Buster, as a child, found that the biggest laughs came. Even though he really enjoyed the physicality of it, the audience didn't laugh when he was laughing and smiling. They laughed when he had the stone face. That's his whole nickname. And it's still fascinating that you feel like you're in on it, that you know that he's doing a stone face for a comedic effect. It elicits sympathy in a way that if it was someone who had just a taciturn expression, would not. So when he's courting her, you've already watched him for a while. His whole thing is trying to find enough cash that he can buy the fancy box of chocolates for her. So there's so much endearment to what he's doing. You want the best for this guy. And being able to establish that kind of sympathy is crucial. And it's not always easy, especially if he's the goofy guy or the guy that's digging through trash. There's plenty of things here where your brain wouldn't automatically make you rooting for him as the romantic hero, but I think you do. I think you see him and get a sense of sweetness, and you're like, oh, look at that little rig he gave her. Look at his magnifying glass. (laughs) Yeah. In all of these films, you side with him, start out right at the beginning in that theater, and the poor guy's just buried in garbage. He's got aspirations beyond. He comes at it from a more, I would say, working class. Harold Lloyd's the boy next door. Mm. Harold Lloyd's that suburban boy next door. So it's slightly different, a bit of likability there. Yeah. As you guys were mentioning, just the fact that time isn't on his side in this and that he captures the audience's attention and really just our awe and interest in such a short amount of time is so amazing. He's so compelling in every second of this film. And one of the things that we sort of touched on earlier that I'm realizing the more I watch Silence is how few interstitial cards are used. As you guys mentioned, he probably uses the least. Oh, for sure. I remember watching in something else that the average during the silent film era was around 240 title cards. And... In this one, I'm going to say five. He uses just a handful of them. And when you think of what he's using them for, one of them is entirely for a joke. I read it, and it's also funny because he's someone who's very actively was like, I don't want to rely on that for the humor. And yet there's still a whole title card that's just in there with the joke in it, so much so that I laughed out loud and now I'm kicking myself 
for not screenshotting it so I could quote it directly. Also, there are some really complicated story issues here going on that he's managing to do without these title cards. There's many modern filmmakers who struggle to convey a dreamlike state. With Sherlock Jr., we see Buster. He's gone through this whole thing with the girl and her father and this pocket watch. He's dejected. He's back at work. And you see him fall asleep on the stool by the projector. And from there, it's just these choices of some really smart in-camera practical effects that show his spirit leaving his sleeping body. And then he goes into the theater and then you see the actors on screen turn into the people that we just met. And we're like, oh, those are the people from his... Just setting that up is so elegant, except for it's also simple enough that you never feel distanced from it. Anyone of any age could watch that and be like, oh yeah, he fell asleep and now he's imagining himself in the movie. Which is a remarkable concept to be able to convey so cleanly. Absolutely. One of the things that we really take for granted, too, when it comes to this film, I didn't even really start to think about it until, I don't know if you guys read the IMDb trivia while you watch, but I do. And I was reading the IMDb trivia, and this movie was rated on the top 100 best editing of all time. More than the stunt work, more than the acting, more than the storytelling, this is probably in my top five best edited films I've ever seen. We really take it for granted today because it's so much easier to do now. Something like the scene where he's in the movie going through all the different scenery changes, all of the different effects there, you see that on TikTok every day now. People can just do that with their phones. But back then just the setup and the time and the energy it took to film every frame and interchange them like that is just a marvel. The editing throughout is impeccable. And it is that idea of it's the same thing, the same economy he has in storytelling that translates to the edit, to how long am I in any given place? But because he's directing the intersection of camera and editing is just tight and perfect. It's also what we're mentioning when we're saying, if you're wondering if you've seen a Buster Keaton gif, it's from this section of Sherlock Jr. He's climbed into the screen and they're playing with the idea of filmmaking in general because he's part of a movie. So they get to make commentary on how movies are made, which is a whole other layer of fascination. First, he's standing on a rock, and then he falls into a hole in the desert, and then he's in the water. But it's this combination of these clean, clean edits, but to capture that, the technology was not there. He and his DP used surveyor's equipment to line up and make sure he was in the same space, in the same position. Whereas now you'd have, oh, my DIT is going to bring over the playback video and we'll line up digitally. This is not an option. It's so advanced for what they're doing, and he makes it look so simple. That's what I was thinking. Watching that last night, you sit there and go, how easy this is now, and how much clunkier certain films are. Touching back on story economy, how many times do we hear somebody in the movie go, oh, remember when we went to school last year? Or how's my sister's cousin doing? The fact that he tells this intricate story with no title cards and then jumping into 
these crisp, clean, that edited sequence when he jumps into the screen, I would agree with Samantha, is probably the best edited movie I've ever seen. And to think of all the steps they must have taken to be able to execute that in 1924. At this point, filmmaking's what, 25 years old, give or take that he tackled all of this and honestly did something better. It's duplicating what kids do on their phones with TikToks. It's truly incredible. What kids wish they were doing on their phones. Yeah. yeah. It's the combination of things because the edit throughout is so crisp and you don't notice it, which is the best part of editing, but you're always in the right place. And the camera, again, is such a key part of that. There's a whole motorcycle sequence where he's sitting on the front of the handlebars and doesn't realize the driver of the motorcycle has fallen off. The amount of things in this movie that I do not know this day, a hundred years later, how they did it, that's incredible to me. But also how that whole sequence ends. He's going and going. He goes through traffic. He goes through all these things. There's so many places where you're like, oh, he fell off and died. Oh, he should have fallen off and died, but he does not. And then how it does end is he makes his way back to the cabin. The motorcycle hits the edge of the building and he just flies off feet first through the window and kicks the bad guy in the chest. He's been on this motorcycle for five or ten minutes. It's insane to me that I was like, oh, yeah, I did not know how this was going to end. And I definitely didn't see that ending coming. And I feel like that's the setup for so many of his gags. One of my other that you could dissect for days, there's film school right there, is one of the first things when he hits the movie version and he's the fancy detective and he goes to the girl's house again and now it's a fancy house. Um, And he encounters the bad guy with the mustache, tall guy with the mustache, and the butler henchman. We see these guys are either going to poison him They're going to hit him with this axe in a chair, or there's an exploding billiard ball. And then we watch for the next 10 minutes as Buster Keaton navigates all three of those threats, and we're like, oh, don't drink the poison! And then he gives the poison to the other guy, and then, oh, don't... It was already blowing my mind. When he started playing that billiards game and hitting around the ball that was the explosive one, was number 13, I seriously was like, Dear Google, was Buster Keaton the world's best billiards player? It's so insane. And the best answer is that he was. He learned how to play for four months to film that scene. It's funny because, again, I started reading the trivia before I watched the whole thing, so I spoiled it a little bit. I read that before I saw the scene, and I was like, oh, so he does trick shots. I imagine trick shots like he's just going to be really good at putting the balls in the holes. No, he literally avoids this one ball, keeps it perfectly still while he sinks all of the other ones in all these crazy, amazing ways. And yeah, it's so cool. Also, it's funny you bring up the butler because now that we're discussing it, I'm thinking to myself, was that Eric von Stroheim or did he just really look like him? Good eye. I didn't even think of that. No, it probably wasn't. But of course, that type, you know, he's a bad guy. He was Erwin Connolly, but in my head, the idea of any bad guy bringing up Eric von Stroheim is already pretty funny, so... He looked just like him. That whole scene was amazing, too. It's one of those things where it just went from one masterful scene to another. There was no break. 
you didn't even mention in the part with the motorcycle, he goes in front of a train, a moving train. That's the one thing I still don't understand. I don't understand how he did that either. It goes to still frames at one point when he's right in front of the train. But still, how did he get that to happen? I don't know. I felt that way so many times in this. Oh my gosh, I'm really bouncing around, but that's this movie. You keep remembering these different parts. But going back to that whole sequence of those two guys trying to kill him, speaking of layers, the layers of expectation, and one of the reasons at the beginning of that scene is because it's set up like a movie. This film takes advantage of movie language and expectation and then thwarts it all the time. So it's set up as if, oh, the audience is finding out this guy is poison and the audience is finding out that it's explosive so we feel like we have information that buster does not and so then it heightens the tension when we're in that scene right and we're like oh is he gonna oh they okay he switched the drink and now the other guy has the drink and now it's funny to watch him and blah 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 very hitchcockian yes except for then it twists it again because at the end the whole time with the ball the other guys are cowering They're like, is he going to hit this explosive ball? When's this ball going to blow up? They're literally on the other side of the door behind curtains. And it doesn't and it doesn't. And we're wondering, too, the little doop at the end is, oh, no, he knew it was explosive. He had already switched the ball. So the idea of playing constantly with how film works and how audience interaction with film works, that that adds so many layers to each scene. So many people could have been given that raw idea, like a prompt almost. But okay, here's the scenario. There's two bad guys. They come up with three ways to try and kill this guy. How would you comedically show it? But he's giving the most for each of these setups, but also subverting expectations while also playing with the idea of how cinema gives information anyway. My mind, blown all the time. The awareness of film form is just staggering. The awareness, what you're describing is stuff we talk about, give credit to Hitchcock for milking 30 years later. This is coming at the very beginning and we're showing just how all of these ideas that we take for granted now in cinema comes from somewhere. We're starting at the ground up here. This is one of the greatest comedies ever made. I'd argue probably one of the most intelligent in terms of that story crafting. And it's coming in 1924. Everybody talks about the auteur theory and they attribute it to Hitchcock or other directors from the golden age when here you have Buster Keaton directing and doing the stunt work and starring everything, basically, and nobody really calls him an auteur. It's something to think about. Yeah, shame on them. I love that other than he's so good at the stunts, but... What he's asking of people, if he had asked other actors to do that, we would think he's a nightmare because he's putting himself in such harm's way so that he does it to himself. You're like, oh, you're just crazy. Okay, you're an artist. You know what I mean? It would have been very easy for him to have just been like terrorizing actors. There's this moment where he just casually from one long shot runs off the top of a roof, grabs on to a two story gate that's sticking directly into the air, holds on to the end of it, and lands in a moving car in one shot. The idea of looking at the framing of, okay, next, our hero needs to get from A, B. How are we going to do that? 
looking at this building, I mean, looking at anything and being like, well, clearly the most interesting is we're going to have him run off the top of the building. That's as absurd as any of the gags is, like, to look at that. This is one, too, that there's a physical comedy moment in this that literally broke his neck, left him in debilitating pain the rest of his life, led to a lot of his issues with alcohol, but it's visually stunning, and of course he left it in, and it's when he's, of course, you guys, as you do, running along the top of a train, jumping cab to cab, every time. I was like, oh my gosh. Jumping cab to cab across the top of a train, and he's under a water tower. The end of it jumps off, grabs the water tower, and then water releases, and it floods out. And it was so much more than he was expecting. It pushes his body down the final, like, ten feet, pushed down by all the weight of this water onto the metal rail, and then he still gets up and runs away, and then keeps working, and only found out years later that he had literally broken his neck when he did that. Because a doctor discovered it was calloused over. Oh, why am I in such pain today? Because I broke my neck yesterday doing the world's most insane stunt. I watched that scene twice. Very rarely do I do that. I backtracked. I was like, I need to see this again. It's just the perfect timing that running, jumping those moving cars. I'm watching this. I'm going, this is all happening in front of the camera. I'm like, how are they doing this? There's no way to duplicate this. And the, I read the IMDb trivia after the fact on what happened on his neck. And it was like, oh, my God. But it's so gorgeous how it all comes off. I knew about that. I knew that he had broken his neck and I knew which stunt it was. I didn't know it was from this film. And it's, again, where I'm saying all of the amazing gags, all the amazing stunts and shots that I've seen of Buster Keaton all really culminate in this film it's absolutely insane. The fact that he would leave it in is a huge testament to the kind of person he was. That was his true strength. Stunt work is really underrated nowadays. A lot of people have been saying that there needs to be a stunt work Oscar, which I agree with. Not only the fact that he did these stunts, but the fact that he orchestrated them, like you were saying, Drea, where it's like he plans it out. He's going to get from point A to point B doing this. And he was really... I don't want to say the only person at that time, but definitely the most prolific person at that time who thought things through so meticulously in that sense of stunts. And that's why they used him later on in movies like In the Good Old Summertime and those beach party movies, because not only was he the only person able to do those stunts, he was the only person who could think of them. That's such a great point. It's one thing to have the vaudeville background and have those roots. And I think one of the most vaudevillian stunts in this is this moment where he's walking by and there's someone standing with a suitcase and then he dives. It looks like he dives through their torso, through this open suitcase, a fence. I also rewound that and was like, what? It's like you're breaking down magic tricks. I'm sorry, now I'm just literally listing things. But there's another thing that I was like, what? just happened which is when he's going to be running away he sets up a frame that has a suit like an old woman's clothing in it puts it in the window and it's like why in the world would you have what looks like a frame with this very carefully arranged garment and it means that when he jumps out the window with these bad guys in hot pursuit within nanoseconds he's in full costume disguised as an old woman and i was like what just happened And those are the setups. You can have that background, 
but it's the ingenuity with how he's approaching each of these things. It's a specific distinctive brain and way to have the artistry of what he's doing because you're not getting that from everyone. No one else is looking at like, okay, so in the next scene, we need to have him exit, be able to hide really quickly. What are some fun, inventive ways we can do that? I can't even think of those monkeys that are going to type out all of Shakespeare if they're given enough time and typewriters. They're still not going to come up with that stunt. No, I don't care how many monkeys and how much time. That kind of stunt comes out of one kind of brain. And it's just every single scene is like that. Every single scene has to have something to make it better and better. And normally movies get a couple of those total the movie. I'm glad you mentioned that one where he leaps through the suitcase. It seems like it would be probably simple setting it up, but how they executed that, I stopped and watched that, I think a second and a third time myself, just because it's so gorgeous and so smooth. I was leaning in real close. I'm like, okay, what's he doing here? It's amazing that Dre bring up his vaudeville background because watching this film, one of the biggest surprises for me, it was a really pleasant surprise Because when I saw this, I didn't really know all that much going into it. I thought it was just like a Sherlock Holmes spoof. I didn't know anything about the movie within the movie or anything like that. But watching this, I saw his dad, Joe Keaton. And that was really cool because he was a vaudevillian himself. Buster came from that background. And so a fun fact, I don't talk about it enough on the podcast, I would say, but Joe Keaton was the first grave that we marked, Jessica Wall and I, as part of our grave marking project. So seeing him on screen after marking his grave and doing all the work for that was really amazing. And it was something that I didn't expect. Yay! I love that we have that connection. And good for you, Samantha. I wasn't directly involved in that one, but I was like, wait, we as an organization did that. That's so cool. It It just goes to show that that kind of cause and that thing that we're doing is like, wow, we're paying tribute to these actors who starred in these movies that we love. Yeah. So so that was really cool. I just had to throw that in. And Joe Keaton in this, he plays the father of the daughter that is being pursued by Buster's character. And even that, he has a whole little arc. He has this thing where he has tears rolling down his face because he's made a mistake. And that's one of the other things too. It's very easy to look at this film like I've just done and literally just list stunt after stunt and gag after gag. But there's also the framework of the story is as rock solid. That's what supports all of these gags, that it's so cleanly set up. You get this whole emotional whirlwind because it's not just like, oh, he's trying to win the heart of a girl. And normally the simplest story there is just he's going to impress her with all of these gags, right? But instead, they set up, oh, he's been accused of something he didn't do. There's so much complexity of it. And then tying that again, all I'm doing is listing all the things that impress me. But the idea, too, of looking at this, each step of it, of setting up the idea, it's not just that it's a movie within a movie, but in the real life, like I said, we've also set up that he's a projectionist that wants to be a detective. That starts right away. That's one of the things. They're not even title cards. We get to see his, his detective checklist. And so when all of this kicks up at the beginning of like the stolen pocket watch and all that, and he's like, oh, I'm going to impress them with my detective skills. That's what puts him in hot water because he's had this thing planted on him. That isn't the whole detail. The whole detective thing 
is something I could see someone else omitting completely. That it could be the same story, but they didn't put that in, and therefore it doesn't have that same tie that when he gets to the movie within a movie and he is a detective, there's also a wish fulfillment thing. It could have just been this projectionist dreams of this, but integrating that element of the story on both sides is as smart and detailed as any of the gags are. It gives us so much character work. There's not a wasted second. Not a wasted second at all. The intricacy in setting that up, it wouldn't be nearly as complex if they omit that. Feels like it would be so simple, but that one little detective element there at the beginning, it builds that character and it gives him a redemption arc and it gives him that arc of wish fulfillment. And it checks so many boxes that need to be checked when it's something that honestly, a lot of people would look at and go, oh, you don't necessarily need that. Going into this, I only knew about the detective aspect. I didn't know anything about the tribute to movie making and the movie magic that went into this film. It's funny because we were talking about the things that this film and Buster Keaton went on to inspire. And you've got the Purple Rose of Cairo, which completely omits the detective part. It's more of a tribute to movie making and it has the movie within movie aspect, but it's a lot simpler, really. And then you have tributes to detective movies these days and a lot more Sherlock Holmes adaptations now that Sherlock Holmes is in the public domain. So you have things that have occurred since then that are paying tribute to each facet of this film, but you can't replicate how intricate and complex this film is as a whole. I love seeing the piecemeal influences of this throughout. The other thing is that it has all of these details in it, all of the gag, and at the end of the day, it's also just so funny. It's this baseline element of, oh, that is just a funny movie to watch, which is a deceptive thing because a lot of times comedy is often underwritten as like less difficult to pull off than drama, and I would argue the opposite. And I think all of the things that we've covered in this, like the editing, the setups, all of that, they're done with the mind of what's the laugh? What laugh am I earning from the audience by the end? To look at someone put that much time into the edit of it, just to make sure that each laugh hits, is not something we see a lot. Normally, it's just the idea of, ooh, either I'm going to write something really funny or someone's going to improv a line, which is not something you can do with a silent film. There's so much preparation for it, but he also said that for as meticulous as these look and difficult, especially with the comedic beats, that it was 50% improv on a shoot day. That you'd do all these plannings, but then you'd get there and be like, oh, what if my hat flies off now? Or, oh, what if I go through this wall or I'm still holding up that vaudeville bit where he jumps through the suitcase? that's in someone's stomach is already funny, but then it ends with the bad guys freaking out there is a door behind. They go through the door, and when they push it around, he's clinging to the other side so they don't see him come back. There's a button, and the ability to have that flexible brain that both plans as much as it does so that there's a little physics involved with some of his stunts of, oh, okay, well, I need exact measurements to make sure you won't die doing this. But also, to be someone who is a spontaneous and flexible enough of a filmmaker, 
to take advantage and roll with, literally, in some cases. What do we have at this setup? Oh, what does this person that I'm working with, what can they do to change around what it is? What And that, I think, is really what elevates him at the end of the day, being able to do both of those things equally well, to be the planner and the improviser is unheard of. That's my sermon. That's oh. my Buster <laughs> Keaton sermon. Mentioning the physics, I mean, the lack of ability to not die. The train made me gasp. Even before when he's jumping, there's a sequence where he's following the bad guy. And he's standing right next to a stationary train and one comes in behind him. The two trains hit and he's maybe four, five inches away in theory from those two trains. I sat back and I gasped. Or thinking the joke in Steamboat Bill, the one that everybody see the gif where he's in the middle of the falling house, we're smack dab in the window. The intricacy that goes into crafting these stunts and the work, but yet it feels, I use the term improvisational masterfulness on something else earlier. And it feels like it's just coming together on the spot, but the work that went into all of this work, he was truly a master of his craft. And one thing that I feel like we don't take into consideration a lot too, is this is back when movies had a very short shelf life. Mm -hmm. This is back when the people who were putting all of the effort into this film and making this film and releasing this film thought that it would be forgotten about in five years. They didn't think that these movies would have any lasting impact. They didn't think movies in general would have a lasting impact. And here we are literally almost 100 years later talking about it and going through it scene by scene. And I think that that says a lot. And the irony, of course, is this was considered one of his first failures in that it it did mediocre box office. It got mixed critical reviews. Some of his reviews were like, there's too many gags and stunts. Embarrassment Ooh. of riches. How bad for you? Yeah, I think um, I saw it was a rave. I read Luella Parsons just fawning over it. And I was, right. that was what amazed me was how much she loved that film. Can I you just, imagine being any person in 1924 and having this movie come out and not going to see it? Can right? you just imagine? No, I cannot. But it also, it made less than Three Ages, which I think was his previous film. It had mixed reviews. It did get some glowing ones. My favorite was a negative review from Picture Play, which wrote that it was devoid of ingenuity and originality, which is, oh, Picture Play. I find this interesting in that he was, therefore, sort of despondent about, like, was like, oh, okay, I don't like that one. Because it was the first thing that he had done that didn't get a ton of response. And, of course, it's won all of these people over now. In looking at Buster's later life, I find him as fascinating real-life figure as he is an artist. One of the few romantic trajectories that did bum me out entirely because he had what looked like a very difficult first marriage. The woman he had children with and they had a very ugly ending and he separated. She kept him away from his son. Constance Talmadge's sister is who he was married to, who even changed their last name to Talmadge, the boys did. So he went through all this. He went to rehab and married a nurse for two years. He was like, I don't even remember the wedding. I'm sure it was in physical pain all the time, which is what leads a lot of people towards the path of addiction. Not a lot, but some. It's interesting to me that I find his final marriage and love of his life as endearing as I do because it started out 
in ways that I find abhorrent, which is she was a 19-year-old dancer, actress, and he was 42, and they met at Bridge Club. And that's generally a setup for something that really is ugh for me. But they ended up staying together for the next 30, 40 years until he passed away. She was credited with bringing him back artistically and helping keep him straight and sober. And they worked out a whole act and toured together and had a really positive, loving relationship with each other. So I will give a little of more absolving than I typically would. But if you are a 42-year-old man, please do not think you can date and marry 19-year-olds. You cannot and should not, sir. In this case, I'll give a small pass to Eleanor Norris. And she's the only one. She's gone now, so you don't get her. Any closing thoughts on this movie? It's very funny that we just talked for the length of time that the entire movie runs for. And I could still talk, but really all I would just be doing is like, and what about that time? The specificity of starting out that he needs $3 so he can get the $3 thing of chocolate. He has $2. And then we spent our whole intro to him doing this whole thing with trying to get these dollars. He never gets it. So he gets the $1 box of chocolates. He puts a four on it. He puts the number so it looks like it was $4, which is a sweet touch when he does it. You're like, ah, you cheeky little dork. And then that exact amount is what bites him because that's the amount that this pocket watch was pawned for. And they're comparing it. There are so many great choices in this movie that I'm constantly amazed by on every level. One of the reasons why a lot of classic film fans, when it comes to like, oh, what should my kid be started off with? What should I show to my child? They start with the silence because... The reason why they do it is the movie magic that's involved in creating these and the simplicity of them marvel us all like we're children. We could literally talk about this for part of it we have like we're eight-year-olds. Oh, remember the time he did this? And oh, and he went into the movie. It was so cool. That's exactly how it makes us feel. There was a tweet going around and pardon me, I forget who tweeted it. Those movie experiences where you find are magical. Watching this last night, I can literally say I have not sat through a movie where I've sat there and go, I need to watch that again. This was so cool. I need to look at just how this is magic. This is delightful. I need to watch this to understand it. And that fit it. And I think you're exactly right, Samantha. This is storytelling at its purest, storytelling at its finest. You don't need to read that much, and it's still accessible. It meets you at your level, and it's so finely tuned, so finely crafted. It's masterful. I also think it's the perfect example of a film to give someone who either thinks of silent film as not being accessible, or that even more annoying and broader, old films. Old films, they're slow. I don't get them. I dare someone with modern eyes who hasn't seen an older film, aka anything, what, before 1990? I don't even know what they mean by that anymore. But 1977. Right? Since before Star Wars. I dare them to watch this and be like, I'm sorry, what is this? What's in this movie that you don't like in other movies currently? I taught a music video production at USC for 13 years. 
and now can't believe I didn't show this in its entirety. Although it might have been hard to get away with in a music video class. But so much to learn. I'm so glad that we talked about it and that you guys had such good responses to it, as I knew you would, because, you know, impeccable taste and all. That's the thing we all have in common. It makes me want to discover more Buster Keaton films. That's all there is to it. I hope that's what we do. I do want to point out, as we wrap up, I meant to do this at the beginning, but Kimberly has been doing such wonderful stuff on our website, so I highly recommend people check that out. Kim, do you have any highlights, and do you want to tell them our URL and what was uh, up there recently? We are at journeysinclassicfilm.com. As of recording this, I'm hard at work at TCM Film Festival stuff. I'm bringing the love for the classic TV people. So I have my What's on TV series coming up every other Friday. I go through the TV lineup in 1965. At the moment, I'm on on Wednesday. And I go through what's on TV and looking at, okay, so Gilligan is on this night. Oh, look at what was on this other network that we've never heard of. Why was that? Oh, because it was up against Gilligan. Lots of reviews. I have tons of interviews coming up, have a backlog of those. So stay tuned for those Ticklish Business Web exclusives. Swing by and take a look. Nice. And where can people find you for your stuff? I am at Twitter most regularly at kpier624. I also try and update my Instagram, but I'm not as good at that. kpier624 as well and letterboxed kpier624. Consistent branding. That's what we want. Nice. Exactly. And Samantha, where can people find you and include your Twitter so they can also go through your recently concluded Battle of the Blondes, a worthy endeavor that they should check out? Where can people find that? I am also most frequent on Twitter at Classic Film Geek. And yes, I just concluded the Battle of the Blondes. It was a March Madness bracket in April of all of the old Hollywood blondes. And Drumroll, Carol Lombard won the whole shebang, as she should. She's amazing. You can find my blog at musingsoftheclassicfilmatic.com. I've got some cooking with the stars posts over at classicmoviehub.com. I'm Drea Clark. You can find me at the Drea Clark on Twitter, where I am also a very sporadic, more of a lurker and a watcher, but I'm there, so you can find me. And then I also host a contemporary podcast on Maximum Fun, which is currently called The Untitled Iffy Drea and Alonzo Project because we are renaming. That closes out this edition of Ticklish Business. You can find our podcast on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz with a Z. If you are listening, then you've probably already figured out where you can download our podcast, but it's everywhere and we would love to get some reviews from you on Apple specifically. So if you could give us a nice little five-star review, that really helps drive people to us. And then you can get exclusive pins, early episodes, entirely new shows on our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. All right, so that's everything for today. Have a good one. 